This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode in your podcast feed every Thursday. Now, this week we're exploring the history of makeup with the presenters of English Heritage's popular series of makeup tutorials on YouTube, which explain how to get iconic looks through the ages, from Roman times to the 1940s. And here's a taster. Talk me through her look. I feel like her look is iconic and there were three main parts to it. So it was porcelain white, clean, clear skin. She had rosy cheeks and then beautiful ruby lips. So what are we going to start with? So we're going to start with our priming stage and we're using egg whites. Well, joining me very much in the present are the stars of those videos, fashion historian Amber Butchart and makeup artist Rebecca Butterworth. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Now, these videos have been pretty successful and I believe the Queen Elizabeth I makeup tutorial, part of which we've just heard, has been viewed more than five million times so far. So did either of you expect that, given that it's not exactly a look that you would expect to see these days? And uh, Amber, if you want to go first. Well, I don't think you can ever expect to rack up five million views on YouTube. But as soon as I heard about the idea, I, you know, I had a lot of faith in it. I knew it was going to be popular, especially beginning with a monarch who's so strong, has such a strong image like Elizabeth I. So I was surprised in some ways, but also not surprised in others. Mm. Rebecca? I mean, I was just delighted that it was so successful. And, you know, like Amber says, I wasn't too surprised that it was so successful because Queen Elizabeth I does have such a curious but also iconic look. It seems like a lot of people were super interested in finding out how she created that. So I was delighted that it did so well. Mm. How did you get into your respective fields? Historic fashion for Amber and historic makeup for Rebecca. And Amber again, if you want to start us off. Well, mine was really born of sort of lifelong passion, essentially. I'd always shopped for secondhand clothes at car boot sales and charity shops, always had a real interest in it. I went to university and did a literature degree. And after I finished, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I sort of had this epiphany over the summer that the other thing I'd always loved was old clothes. So I got a job at my favourite shop, which was a vintage clothing store called Beyond Retro. And I quite quickly became the buyer for the company because I would spend my lunch breaks reading around the pieces we were selling, trying to understand it better, and also getting a grasp of the social history behind the clothing that we were selling as well. After I'd been doing that for a while, I went back to university and did a master's degree in history and culture of fashion from London College of Fashion and just sort of carried on. I started doing my own writing, bits and pieces of broadcasting, and and now we're here. <laughs> well, and then, yes, obviously YouTubing. How did you get into your respective field, Rebecca? Well, it's funny, Amber, I think, is the more legitimate one out of us two. She's an actual <laughs> historian. And um, I mean, I've been a makeup artist now for around about 20 years, and my makeup career has sort of evolved from working in mostly retail-based makeup through to doing a lot of fashion and beauty-based makeup. And at the moment, technically my daytime job is being a prosthetics makeup artist. So I do a lot of film and TV, uh, gore, old age, gluing bits of silicon to people's faces. So it's quite different to historical makeup. But I've always been so fascinated by history, by 
kind of how people viewed themselves from times gone by. So historical makeup is just kind of a, it's a bit of a personal passion of mine and something I'm just super deeply interested in. Mm. Everybody should have a look at her Instagram because <laughs> it's really exciting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> have you got to work with any sort of um, royals, sh- shall we say? Like, not Queen Elizabeth I, obviously, but, uh, you know, some modern royals or, or famous people in your TV and film work? No, no royals, unfortunately. That would be amazing. I'd love to. I did do a makeup a couple of years ago in May for um, a makeup trade show where I transformed one of my friends who is about 20 into an old age Queen Elizabeth I, um, which was really good fun. And actually, I wonder whether that was how um, English Heritage saw my work. Yes. A few famous people here and there, you know, some good stuff and some really fun films and some great TV programmes, some that are going to be coming out this year. So, yeah, it's been a really fun career so far. Yeah, we'll look out for those. And your name in the credits, of course. Yes. What, what inspired you then to take part in this YouTube series and how were you both approached? You mentioned that trade show there with the Queen Elizabeth I makeup, which you think might have helped. Tell us the story. So I'd done this makeup that was a Queen Elizabeth as an older Queen Elizabeth. I'd put that on my website. I think that was on um, my Instagram And then I had an email from English Heritage to say that they were going to be producing this series and it was about history, but also makeup. And they were looking for a makeup artist to work on that series. And they emailed me and I pretty much jumped out of my chair when I read that email because I love history. I love makeup. I was delighted to be working with English Heritage. And then they told me Amber was involved and I was like, just sign me up right now. (laughs) So... Because I really loved Amber's work from um, A Stitch in Time, which was on BBC4 a little while ago. So I thought it would be a really fun pairing, us two talking about fashion and makeup and context and, you know, how we can make it interesting and relevant for a modern audience. Yeah. Amber, how did you get involved? Well, I was approached by email by English Heritage and I just thought it sounded like a great project. I obviously am a big fan of English Heritage anyway. And thought that the concept of doing these sort of tutorials that people could do at home for historical looks was such a great way into understanding history. A big part of all of the work that I do is about, you know, using clothing and using how we adorn the body to try to understand the past. And so I just thought this sounded like a fantastic way of doing that, a fantastic route into history and also just a lot of fun as well. Get to work with Rebecca, get to visit Mm. some amazing English heritage sites. What is not to love? Yeah, it's a really great visual spectacle, I must admit, with all those great vistas and drone shots and then, you know, the ruins or, or whatever it is. I understand you went to Isle of Wight the last time we spoke to you. Yeah, Osborne House. That was great. Uh, really fantastic. Oh, that was all, fun. Yeah, all of the trips that we've done have been have been really, really brilliant. It was lovely going to Osborne and staying on the Isle of Wight. I hadn't been there since I was about. Well, I went there first, I think, when I was about nine years old. So it was lovely to go back. Yeah, it was for the so Victorian. That's the Queen Victoria one. Because of course she lived there. Um, she did. So, what periods of makeup history do we cover in the series? I understand there's about six videos. Yeah, we go all the way back from Roman times when we're sort of focusing on Julia Donmer, who was the wife of uh, Septimus Severus, through to Queen Elizabeth I. We look at Queen Victoria. We've looked at the Georgian era. um, We looked at 1930s. And then our most recent video was concentrating on World War II and the look around a wren during World War II at Dover. 
And does this look at only female makeup? Because I understand the Georgian period, the men did sort of have some colour in their faces as well, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Georgian period is probably one of the more recognised eras where men were wearing makeup more obviously. We don't necessarily just focus on women wearing makeup, and actually, makeup isn't solely used by women. Um, I think if there was opportunities to do more of these episodes, it would be really, really interesting to focus on different groups of people that wear makeup. Do you have a favourite episode out of the ones that you've done so far, that the six you've that you've covered? My favourite is actually, I think, the Georgian one. So, Rebecca, what are the key elements from the look from this era? We're going to focus on doing pale porcelain skin, dark black eyebrows and flushed rosy cheeks. It's going to be very elegant, very beautiful. That was my favourite to work on because we looked at both women and men, because it's such a theatrical look. But it's a look that we all sort of recognise from costume dramas, from historical film and TV. So really trying to sort of peel back the layers and understand the reality versus the sort of fictionalised depictions we'd see on TV was really interesting. There's also just such close links at this time between dress, makeup, politics, society, power, that it's just, it's got everything. It's really aesthetically strong, but also, you know, in terms of the history and the context, it's really interesting as well. What about you, Rebecca? What's your favourite episode? I really loved the Georgian one as well because I just thought Kenwood was such an incredible sight to go and look at. But actually, I think my favourite one was probably the Roman video that we did. So how are we going to bring this look to life? So we're going to start our first step in the um, Roman bathing ritual by massaging Sarah's arm with a little bit of oil. We're using just a cheap olive oil. So oil is what helps to start the cleaning process. And it ended up being my favourite one because it was the one that I was most daunted by when we first were talking about doing that period of time because of course the Roman period is also is huge. But um, also I wasn't really sure what makeup I could bring into that video. I didn't really know how much research I'd be able to find. And then it turns out there was just tons. There was so much and I found it deeply fascinating to go back and look at that period and to see what things were really different from what we would do these days. For example, things like using crocodile dung as an astringent on your face is not something that we tend to do these days. <laughs> but also, you know, a lot of the similarities of, of how we view ourselves and how we view grooming and hygiene from things like the Roman period's obsession with cleanliness and hygiene and public bathing and just the way that they saw grooming um, and their personal appearance, I thought was really fascinating. Let's get into the history of makeup then. Let's try and break mm. down the pigments, shall we say. Why did people start using it and, and when? It's tricky to kind of pinpoint an exact moment when makeup started because as far back as you've got people discovering pigments that you could then mix with oil and use as paints, I would say they're probably putting them on themselves as well. There's a fascinating burial that's in Wales and it's called the Red Lady of Paviland, although it's since been discovered that the skeleton is not a lady, it's in fact a man. But the skeleton's been covered in red ochre, 
So the body's been covered in red ochre and then buried. And the body's also been buried with loads of jewellery made of shells and bones. So it's interesting to think that as far back as then, and that's about 30,000 years ago in Wales, that people were probably using some kind of mineral to paint themselves and decorate their bodies. Mm. So it could go all the way back to then. I think really adorning the body is part of the human experience. Mm. And like Rebecca says, I think it just goes as, you know, as far back as, you know, the archaeological record will let it, as far back as sort of humanity itself. I think another good example to think about is Utsi the Iceman, who, Mm. when his body was discovered in 1991 in the Alps, it turned out to be the oldest frozen mummy ever found dated to about 3,300 BCE. Now, he is adorned with 61 tattoos, which I think is really interesting. If we're thinking about makeup and adornment, there's not that much difference. It's just the idea of permanence, I guess, that's the difference between a tattoo and makeup. It's all a sort of cosmetic readjustment. And so these 61 tattoos are made up of groups of horizontal and vertical lines and Xs as well. And they were likely made by rubbing charcoal into cuts. And they're thought to have been medicinal rather than just decorative. So obviously there's loads of speculation about these very early finds. And we can never definitively say, but there were certainly ideas that some of these um, minerals had medicinal qualities as well. Some of them Mm. could be like amulets, sort of warding off evil spirits. And also you have the decorative element as well. So I think really... The concept of makeup of cosmetics is, is as old as, as humanity. And it's certainly yeah. um, men and women really adorning themselves in their own unique way. Tattoos perhaps more male and makeup less permanent, more female. Uh, I don't uh, know whether we can gender it. Yeah, no? I don't think that's really the case. I think you have to look at every... That's what we think now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's not historically, you know, always been the case by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if you think about Boudicca, so we're thinking, you know, about this sort of first time that the Romans came to Britain and Boudicca, queen of the Iceni tribe, led a defeated uprising against the occupying Roman Empire. Now, it's thought, it's difficult to say because the sources that we have about Boudicca are all from after her lifetime and they're all Roman sources. So they're very biased against Boudicca, of course. But Boudicca and her warriors are all said to have been, you know, gone to battle wearing woad, so covering themselves in blue. This is a kind of makeup, but it's for going into battle. It's for something that we consider to be very masculine, you know, sort of military purpose to it. So I don't think those categorizations are necessarily helpful. Yeah, and also with tattoos, it's you can't actually define them just as being either male or female because 2,500 years ago, there was a lady who was found in the Russian steppes. She's called the Ice Maiden and she has tattoos as well. So she has tattoos that look like they, they could be either rams or they might be deer. So it's not just a male or female thing. I think mm. the the desire to decorate your body is like Amber said really human and it's not necessarily gendered because it's really about trying to present yourself to the world Mm, to claim an identity exactly yes to get your identity so that might be fashion that might be makeup and when we talk about makeup I think cosmetics is probably a better word because it's a bit more encompassing or even grooming because it encompasses everything that you might do to your body how has makeup itself evolved over the ages would you say I mean, again, that's a really big question. I think going back to Egyptian times, that 
probably is the starting point of where we tend to think of makeup in the way that we think of makeup now, quite deliberate ways of enhancing a facial feature. So using um, crushed up malachite and crushed up coal or carbon to create eyeliners. I think one of the main ways that makeup is involved is that now it's not just the preserve of very rich, very wealthy, royal or religious leaders. Anyone can get their hands on makeup and it feels a little bit more democratic. Whereas the um, studies done of kind of earlier makeup and also right the way through to perhaps Georgian to Victorian times, makeup tended to be the preserve of people who could afford it because it involves quite a lot of work to find the pigments, mill the pigments, create pigments into an actual makeup and also the time it takes to make that. So you tended to be someone who was more wealthy or have more time on your hands to be able to make them. I agree that ancient Egypt was definitely a really important point on the sort of evolution of cosmetics. Like Tutankhamun, for example, you know, people always think about his golden treasures that were found in his tomb, but actually it was textiles and clothing that made up the largest group of items from his tomb and also so many cosmetic artifacts as well. Cosmetics were indispensable for both men and women in ancient Egypt. Personal appearance was so important to the pharaohs that there were titles such as royal wig maker and hairdresser, (laughs) keeper of the royal wardrobe that stretched back for millennia before even Tutankhamun. And again, there was a medicinal element to some of the cosmetics that were used as well. It was thought to provide antiseptic qualities or provide relief from Mm. irritations, things like that. So a real variety of uses. Mm. And one of the reasons why we know so much about Egyptian makeup is that there's um, a medical text that was from around 1500 BC that got discovered and translated in the 1800s that details hundreds of cosmetic formulas and remedies there's an interesting one in there that helps you um, combat baldness as well. Going back to the makeup series and the tutorials that you both present, how much research did you have to do for each episode? Was it a question of hours or days? Or I'd say it was definitely days. We did an awful, awful, awful lot of research and it was a really collaborative process. Mm. Working, obviously, Rebecca and I working an awful lot. Also working with Hannah Silverman, the producer at English Heritage, who was fantastic. And also getting help from the English Heritage curators and historians as well. But I would say it's certainly numbered into the days, especially for episodes like Roman Britain, for example, that as Rebecca mentioned earlier, this was an area that was quite new for both of us. So it took an awful lot of research and just absolutely brilliant to be able to fully immerse yourself Mm -hmm. into an era and into a subject in the way that we did with these videos. Amber, I'm so glad that you said it took days of research. I thought that you were going to say, oh, you know, a few hours because you're very accomplished at research. No, I, it like certainly took me a long ages. time. Yeah, yeah. I just I think I've got a very scattergun approach to research and I'm a bit like a magpie. So I'll follow a path and then I'll spot something shiny going down a different path and go and investigate that. So my research can take such a long time just because I'm fascinated by the stories that you can find. I do exactly the same thing, constantly getting distracted by my own research. (laughs) But also I think one of the things that I really wanted to try and do in the research, and I don't think I've fully managed to achieve it, but I think makeup has been talked about quite a lot, makeup and fashion, and often the books that I read or the programmes that I see tend to only scratch the surface and everything feels a little bit superficial 
and you tend to get the same sort of myths or stories being repeated. For example, um, people dying of using lead-based cosmetics. And the more I was digging into these stories, the more I'm realising actually that's not quite true. There's a lot about makeup that I think is trivialised in the sources that I was reading, particularly because a lot of them are written by men and there's a lot of things that turn out to be wrong. So what was really fascinating with the research was to really dig down and figure out, is that really true? For example, with Queen Elizabeth, I'm not sure that she looked quite as frightening as people assume that she did now. Mm -hmm. There's this assumption that she wore really thick, really heavily painted on pure white face makeup. And actually, I don't know whether that's true. I don't fully know yet what she looked like, but I'm making this one of my projects to really dig into that and find that out. Okay, we'll watch this space. We'll see if we can get an update on that research. What was the most challenging look that you both had to recreate, would you say? For me, from the fashion perspective, I think the Georgian one was quite difficult simply because people have a certain idea of fashions of this time from films and TV. As Rebecca said, sort of like trying to peel away those myths, making sure everything was as historically accurate as it could be, that was a real challenge. But I imagine the answer may well be different for the cosmetics, Rebecca. Well, I think that one actually was quite challenging just because there was, we had um, both models. We had a female model and a male model, and it was a very long day, wasn't it, Amber? Trying yeah. to get everything in. I think the hardest one to do was actually probably the Roman makeup because it, it's quite tricky. I really wanted to recreate some very original, specific recipes that were Roman, but it is hard to get those ingredients these days, and it's also quite hard to. Um, tease out the specifics of the recipes because they're a bit out of context now but Mm. um, I was delighted with how that makeup turned out and I think it was really beautiful yeah it was so fantastic that makeup and it was really brilliant to do an episode that differed as you say Rebecca from that very white skin Mm. flushed cheeks red lip which you know I mean that look that just persisted for so long feeds into so many histories, you know, racialized histories, class histories of Britain and the wider Western world. And so to do something on Roman Britain, which was much more international, much more multicultural, was just brilliant. It was so refreshing. For people who haven't seen that look, can you describe what it actually looks like? So we did a makeup that was based on um, Julia Donma, who was an empress's wife. And also I was taking inspiration from some of the more Romano-Christian-based portraits that you'll see from around about the first century AD and the makeup that we did was just like very lovely skin but taking it into a different arena than what we had done before so she had this really amazing eyeliner made out of black coal and then I did a bright blue eyeshadow which was nothing like we'd done before in our video tutorials because in my research I was discovering that um, not necessarily Roman Britons because we don't know how far the um, minerals travelled but certainly Roman women were using minerals like um, malachite and azurite which are a green or a blue mineral pulverised ground minerals to make powdered eyeshadows in really bright colours which was super fascinating because I think you sometimes think of history being black and white and you don't really think of all the colour that you get in um, history. And Amber, the outfit that we did for that Roman video was amazing as well, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was really fun to put that together. And some of it was actually specially made for that video. So again, taking the research, you know, speaking to people who are historical costumiers who specialize in that exact type of clothing and getting them to create something specifically for the episode was just brilliant. It was really exciting, the whole thing. Looking back on that Roman look, how would you compare it to some of the others? Is it one of the easier ones or the in, in terms of actually painting on and yeah, to actually apply, it was it's quite an easy, straightforward one. It was quite basic in terms of the skincare that we used and the actual makeup that we painted on. But one of the things that I found the hardest to do in that makeup was to put the eyeliner on. And that was because I was using a replica of a real Romano British makeup applicating tool, which was um, this little grinder. All right. So it has a small bowl and then a grinder that you grind through your coal or your mineral with a tiny bit of oil to make an eyeliner and then the shape of this grinder is apparently meant to fit onto your eye so you can just draw your eyeliner straight on your eye from your own mixing bowl. Trust me when I tell you it is definitely not that straightforward. It was much more complicated than I thought it was going to be but it was so fascinating to be able to use something that was in fact a way that people would apply their makeup from Roman times. And the other thing that I thought was incredible about those cosmetic grinders was that for years they'd been identified just as necklaces, so crescent moon-shaped pendants. Oh, I see. So they they just thought that they were decorative objects. And it was only recently with an English heritage curator, Cameron, who went back and with her team went back and looked at those finds again and rediscovered actually their real purpose. Mm. And I find that really interesting when it comes to when you get different kinds of people going back in and looking at assumptions that people have made about, you know, makeup or fashion. So to come in and say, actually, I'm looking at this from a different context and I can see that this is to do with makeup. And something else that was similar in our Roman video was uh, in some of my research, I discovered a hairdresser called Janet who had written an academic paper about how Roman women styled their hair. And she had identified in some Roman grooming kits that there was this long, strange needle shaped implement that she, with some experiments, discovered was probably a needle that Roman women would use to sew their hair into these really elaborate shapes that couldn't actually be held up just by the normal pins that you'd find in Roman sites. So it's that fascinating context that you can come at when you look at history from some different angles. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's almost when history almost becomes a bit of a science rather than a humanity. Yeah, And you start to rewrite what was previously written before. Did you have any sort of disasters on set? I know you said you found it maybe a little bit difficult with this eyeliner type scenario. Did you have any problems with other pigments and things not mixing properly and, you know, off camera Um, stuff that we wouldn't know about? I mean, there's two that spring to mind. And Amber, I don't know whether you've got some different ones, but they were both on the same video. And it was the World War II 1940s makeup. (laughs) Okay, so some background, some context. In World War II, it was really difficult to get hold of stockings. And women still wanted to look as though they had stockings on. So um, With the line down the the back? With the line down the back and with like a nice tan colour on your legs. Right. So there were bars that opened up in department stores where you could go and get your legs painted by um, a professional. Okay. Or you could resort to some more homemade remedies and one of the ones that I'd read about was using gravy browning on your legs 
So I've tracked down some gravy browning, surprisingly hard to find, and um, experimented with this gravy browning. I tried it on myself, as I always try everything on myself first. And it looked okay, it worked all right. And then on the day when we were doing the video, I got my gravy brownie out and slapped it onto the model's legs, and it just looked disgusting. I mean, it was bright orangey brown. Her skin was beautiful and pale and really fair, so it looked even worse on her legs. And the smell, <laughs> Charles, you wouldn't <laughs> believe. It just, it smelled like having a really horrible kind of roast dinner on your legs. So what did you so do? Did you still disastrous. draw the line down the back of the leg or? Well, and then the drawing the line down the back of the leg, I was super excited about doing. And um, I'd seen a picture from a magazine, I think it was an American magazine, that had an implement that I decided to call the seam machine. And it's essentially a handle with a bicycle clip and an eyebrow pencil kind of set into a socket that you would then use to draw up the back of your leg. Mm -hmm. And so I had one of my friends who's a really talented model maker make something up for me just based just off this one photograph. And he's amazing. You know, he builds models for Star Wars and things like that. So he made this up for me and I was so excited. I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be a moment of like recreated history. We've really got something here. And then got it to the shoot and tried really hard to use it to draw the um, line up our model's leg. And it just is terrible. It doesn't work <laughs> at all. Okay. So essentially we abandoned the whole leg thing and just sort of talked about how much of a disaster it was on the video. Fair enough. <laughs> Amber, do you remember anything that didn't quite go to script plan? I think that was definitely that was definitely the one. Yeah. Speaking of the models who obviously had to be there as a sort of uh, experimental guinea pigs, which of the models was happiest with their makeover? I think it might have been Stuart, who was our gentleman in the Georgian video. I don't know what you think, Amber, but he seemed delighted yeah. when he had his makeup and the costume and the wig on, and he was strutting around Kenwood <laughs> like he was the lord of the manor. It was so lovely. Yeah, definitely. Also, I think Sharon, who was a brilliant 1930s <gasps> oh, model, and she was also a fantastic swing dancer as well. Oh you can see her God, dancing yes. in the video. Rebecca gave her this incredible Hollywood glam 1930s look, and she was very, very happy with that. Mm. Oh, the dancing at the end of that video is just wonderful. You should yeah. definitely go and check that out. The six videos that you've covered span about 2,000 years of makeup history. So I suppose you've learnt lots of things. It's almost like doing a university course. I've definitely learnt an enormous amount. And um, every time we were given our next topic or we were discussing the next topic that we were going to do, I pretty much felt like, oh, yeah, I, I know this period. I know all the basics of this period. And then every time I got into my research, I'd discover something brand new and something exciting with it so there's always something really amazing to learn I think one of the things that I thought was the most fascinating was with Georgian makeup where you wore your fake beauty spots could tell you about either your perhaps your politics or perhaps the way you were feeling that day or send out messages to people that were looking at you on that day I thought that was just really nice detail regarding these beauty spots what is the sort of breakdown of that code then can you give us an idea there's quite a lot of um, different symbols that you could send out to people, but and also they're not all strictly verified. But for example, if you wore a beauty spot near your mouth, it could mean that you are feeling 
passionate and also the shapes would change so a little bit earlier than Georgian periods sort of later on in the Stuart period going into Georgian periods you would wear patches that could be the shapes of stars or crescent moons um, and there's a really fun illustration from a book that's around about 1660-ish where the illustrator of the book is basically taking the mickey out of the people that are wearing patches and he's drawn a woman that's got um, a coach and horses galloping across her forehead in patch form which I thought was hilarious. Mm. Amber, you're a fashion historian, so presumably you know quite a lot already, but did you learn anything new while doing the series? The era that I learned most about was definitely Roman Britain. I'd looked at Roman dress before in Rome, but not specifically Roman Britain. And so that was absolutely fascinating for me, looking, learning about the emperor and empress, Julia Domna and Septimius Severus. And he'd come from modern day Syria. So the idea that people were traveling so much that there was so much trade going on minerals were traveling cloths were traveling you know you have this real sort of international trade going on at this time and it's pretty multicultural as well so learning more about that was really really fascinating and Mm. definitely an area I'd like to return to Yes, I think that's eye-opening, isn't it? The fact that today we have all these modern ways of travelling, air travel, you know, we can get on a boat somewhere and we can get on a train and go under the channel. And yet these people, thousands of years ago, were travelling vast distances to conquer other parts of the world. And it must have taken them days and months to do. And yet they still did it. You know, I was saying that I think history, you view it as being a bit black and white. And I think we also think of historical periods and before then being being static as well. You don't necessarily think that people mingled and did trade with each other and also took, for want of a better word, style tips from other cultures and then took them back into their own cultures. It's brilliant. It's fascinating. Mm. So looking forward, away from history and into the future, um, are there any periods that you haven't covered yet that you'd like to cover in the in the YouTube series? I am desperate to do more of these videos. They're so much fun. I would love to go all the way back and look at prehistoric makeup further past Roman Britain and see if we can get further back than that. That would be fascinating. I'd love to look at medieval periods. I'd um, really like to look yeah. at medieval Britain. Medieval and Anglo-Saxon Britain would be great. Yes. And also I think actually the 1960s looking at people like Mary Quant, looking mm-hmm. at the you know explosion of colour that we see then, models like Peggy Moffat, false eyelashes. So I think those would be the two extremes I'd like to look at, medieval Britain and then the 1960s. <laughs> sure. Knowing what you both know now, having worked together on this project and the various things that you've brought to the project, your, your respective skills, Have you noticed a sort of interrelation between the way makeup and fashion have evolved together through the ages? Yeah, definitely. And you see that, you know, at a certain point stronger than others. I mean, you also see it with things like the materials that were used. So, for example, things like madder were used for cosmetic reasons in the Elizabethan era for sort of blush, but could also be used to dye clothes. So you see a literal physical relationship at points between minerals or plant matter that was used for both. But also conceptually, you see a sort of correlation as well, I think, especially like I was thinking a lot of the late 18th century 
the period just after we covered in our Georgian video, when you start to see all of these ideas circulating about what is natural and the use of really heavy cosmetics starts to fall out of favour at the same time as a much more simpler mode of dress comes into fashion as well. So you see a real correlation. Ideas are circulating about with pastoral themes, you know, and I, these ideas about nature and communing with nature and that influences both cosmetics and fashion as well. Have you spotted something, Rebecca? Well, I think it's really fascinating the relationship between cosmetics and fashion and particularly around that period you were just talking about, Amber. What really struck me when I was doing my research was I don't think fashion and makeup are in their own little bubble and they can really tell you so much about the wider context of the world. So, for example, around that period or a little bit earlier in the kind of late 1700s, that idea of an incredibly elaborate mode of dress, huge hair, quite strong, bright makeup. Think Marie Antoinette. It tells you so much about how people in power wanted to be perceived, but also who held the dominant power and the look that people were trying to copy, generally speaking, was from France. And at that time, France was holding the dominant power. But you see a lot of the um, French mode of fashion and hair and makeup fall away right before you get to the French Revolution, where people are starting to figure out, hang on a minute, we don't want to be associated with this kind of um, political activity. So it's not just expressed in what people do do physically but it's also expressed in then how people are showing themselves how they're dressing how they're doing their makeup Mm. absolutely and that's why I think dress history and cosmetics history Mm. can be such interesting routes into the past because like Rebecca says it doesn't operate in a vacuum these things are all related to society to politics to culture and so it's a great magnifying glass almost for these wider issues in society But because these are things that we still, many of us still do today, we may still wear makeup, we all of us still wear clothes, it forms a tangible link with the past. Absolutely. So I suppose my last question to both of you then is, where do you think we are in terms of uh, makeup and fashion look today? How would you characterise it? Because it seems to have gone, from what I've observed, uh, away from the sort of bright colours and it seems to be more about the sort of pseudo-natural look. Is that something you'd agree with or how would you see it? I think it's very, very difficult to talk about the times that you're in with any certainty because you never really can figure out what the main themes are of the period you're living in until you've got past them. So I wouldn't necessarily like to speculate exactly on what is a makeup look of 2020 or a fashion look of 2020. But um, what I do find really interesting is that makeup and cosmetics particularly seem to be coming into this interesting space where we're more interested in it and it seems to be becoming more democratic. So perhaps cosmetics were thought of as just something for the ladies, whereas now they feel almost like a symbol of power for potentially what used to be marginalised communities. So perhaps for women and also for men, you know, in the drag scene, people who perhaps don't necessarily have much of a voice can use makeup and can use dress to express themselves and to be more present and to be part of society. And that's why I think makeup and fashion history is so fascinating, because I think it will tell us more of those stories, you know, the further on into the future we get when we can look back on them. Mm. Amber, do you I also th- sorry, I was just going to say, Amber, do you see a definitive look of the last couple of years? 
No, I don't really think we can talk about definitive looks anymore at this point in the saturated visual culture in which we operate. If we think about the sources that we use for some of the videos, for example, Julia Domner looking at Roman Britain, one of the sources we used is a coin how she was represented on a coin. We have very few visual sources to work from. Whereas think about now, we have films, TV, Instagram, YouTube, you know, it's, we're just surrounded by images all the time. We also live in a period where there is mass manufacture of cosmetics and clothing. So there's much more plurality now in terms of looks. Now there are some sort of dominant styles. We've seen really heavy eyebrows being a trend certainly over the last few years. But I think what's great about living now as opposed to living in the past is that there is so much more diversity in how you dress, in how you present yourself in terms of cosmetics or not wearing cosmetics. There is just so much variety available to us. And I think that that's a really good thing. Mm. And it sounds like a daft question, but why is makeup so popular today? Is it just because it's always been? You know, to adorn the body is an essential part of humanity you know, and how we present ourselves to the world is very important. Makeup gives us a tool for transformation, for experimentation, whether we're going with a so-called natural look. And, you know, I don't hugely like that term because, you know, ideas around what is natural shift all the time, or whether we're going for a really bold colours, artist palette all over the face. It gives us the tools to just really get playful, I think. And I, and I think that is something that is hugely enjoyable for a lot of people. Rebecca, did you have anything to add? I think it's tricky to say why is makeup so popular now because I think humans have been using some form of makeup or cosmetic or fashion to talk about who they are and what they want to represent to other people probably since we were functioning conscious homo sapiens and before that. But I think makeup, specifically makeup now, is really interesting to study because it does give you a little window into the intimate lives of people and it gives you a window into how do people want to be seen? How is their image important to them? And what does it say about the world that's around them? And also with you know Instagram, with YouTube, with the rise of social media, you can use makeup to create a whole new person. You can really curate how the world sees you and that might be the key to what makeup does at the moment you've been listening to the english heritage podcast to watch amber and rebecca's makeup tutorials head to the english heritage youtube channel and click the playlists tab next week we uncover the story of york cold war bunker 75 years after the first atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those weapons were a key factor in Japan choosing to surrender unconditionally. Thanks for listening. See you next time.